I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. Are you tired of gulping down the lying filth of the mainstream media? Yeah, we are, too. We try to tell you the truth every single day. Gulping down lying filth. Wow. Nobody wants to sound dumb. Our goal is to help you not sound dumb. We'll inform you, and it'll be fun at the same time. You have to choose between entertainment and information. Combine them both with the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty On Demand. Four episodes available every day. Via the iHeartRadio app or wherever you download your podcasts. I am so excited to launch my first podcast, Luna Talks with Anna Paulina on the Gingrich 360 Network. But let me warn you, this is not a podcast for the faint of heart or easily offended. This is a podcast for those who want to learn, to engage, to be inspired. And perhaps most importantly, for those who still believe in the audacious idea known as the American dream. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Listen to Luna Talks with Anna Paulina every Friday on iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Up next, The Truth with Lisa Booth, part of the Gingrich 360 Network. Too many elites on the coast don't live in the real world. They have these grand ideas about how society should function, but they don't suffer the consequences of their own ideology. They insulate themselves in a cocoon of their money, fancy degrees, and self-righteousness. It's time to get a dose of reality. This is The Truth with Lisa Booth. Welcome back to The Truth with Lisa Booth. I'm really excited for this week's guest. He is absolutely brilliant. You've seen him on TV. You've read his work. He's an absolute genius. The one and only Victor Davis Hanson. Professor Hansen is a classicist, military and historian, and one of the nation's most respected political commentators. He's published more than two dozen books, including the New York Times bestseller, The Case for Trump. And his next book, set to come out in October, is titled The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. I know I can't wait to go get that. Professor Hansen is also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University and has spent decades in academia. And if that's not enough, he's also a farmer in San Joaquin Valley of California. Today, Professor Hans and I have a wide-ranging conversation about politics, the state of America, and the difference between elites who live in a bubble and ordinary Americans who live in the real world. I can't wait to get started. So with that, I want to welcome Professor Victor Davis Hansen to the show. Professor, it's an honor to have you on The Truth with Lisa Booth. Thank you for having me. I've seen your work. I've read your work. I've Every time I've watched you on TV, you're absolutely brilliant. But I wasn't as familiar with sort of your upbringing. So, you know, in researching for the show, I realized that so you're a fifth generation grape and plum farmer and you grew up on a 135 acre farm in Selma, California. And what I find so interesting is you actually you had a Ph.D. in classics from Stanford University and then you decided to go back to Selma to help manage your family's farm. What was behind that decision? Uh, I think there was two Less idealistically, there were not a lot of jobs in 1980 for classical. I was a classical philologist, so that's the narrowest uh, subset or subdiscipline of classics. That was being uh, Greek and Latin language and manuscripts and philology, even though I wrote a thesis on ancient history. But also, uh, I had a grandmother who was 93 living alone. My parents were both trying to manage the farm and work and uh I, I had a twin brother who was had just arrived and he had quit graduate school. So he asked me if I could help him because uh, we also had another 45, it was about 185 acres and we didn't have a lot of money and the farm had kind of been run down because my grandfather who had just died was, was elderly. And so I did that for five years, 
nonstop. And then for the next 10 to 12, I did that. But in, I had also become a professor at the closest university, Cal State University, and I started a classics program. They didn't have any Latin or Greek program. And I started as a part-time teacher at $400 a month. And uh, over the next 21 years, we had kind of a department of five people. And it was pretty successful. And then I finally, when I was about 49, I retired and stopped farming and stopped teaching there. And then I commuted one day a week and have an apartment in Palo Alto the last 17 years and was at the Hoover. I'm at the Hoover Institution, but I still live here and I'm speaking from you from my farm. And I've really been nowhere else the last 14 months like everybody else. What kind of lessons do you think people could learn from farmers and farming? Uh, well, the most important is pragmatism, that all of these ideas that we have or the abstract, they don't really mean anything unless they're matched with reality or deeds. So I can I learned that when I got back from Stanford, I saw my father and my family and they said, well, what can you do? And I said, well, I can write fluently in Latin and Greek. I can tell you all the manuscript family history of Aeschylus. Uh, I'm an expert in the text of Thucydides, at least I thought I was. And they said, can you go down and wire that raisin dehydrator? It's got a 220. And I said, no, I haven't been doing that since I was 17, 18. And they said, well, what was the purpose then? And they didn't mean to mock education. They just said, you have to be well-rounded. So for the next five years, uh, I learned that if I was going to survive, I had to learn to well, drive and service tractors, pesticides, uh, go to farmer's markets and peddle fruit. I did all, all of that with people who most of them hadn't graduated from high school, local Mexican-American people I grew up with. And some of them had a lot of people here illegally. And uh, it was really a way of testing your education. So if you had ideas in the abstract and it didn't work and one good thing about farming, if you say, well, you know, I think that uh, they're wrong about suggesting 10 pounds of acre of ammonium sulfate. I think I could do 15. And yet if you do 15 acres and you burn one tree and you did five acres, the first tree doesn't just burn. The next tree burns and all of them burn because you were idealistic or abstract or theoretical, but you didn't know the actual conditions on the ground. So I became very careful about saying things and postulating or pontificating unless I could see where the practical reality. And then the other thing very quickly is I, I gained a great deal of respect and uh, uh, I don't know, adulation almost for people who made a living with their hands and their wits, farmers, independent truck drivers, uh, mechanics, people that I got along with. And I, I did, I came to a really important discovery at a very early age that the people I had gone to school with as an undergraduate and a graduate uh, school were either no, not as bright or no brighter. Uh, they were certainly no brighter, but many of them were not as bright as the people out in the real world that had to run a 7-Eleven store or a farm supply business. And that was kind of, I mean, that's not anti-enlightenment, but it's it's trying to remind America that it doesn't really matter what your degrees or your alphabet, uh, al alphabetic cluster is behind your name if you're not practical. We really saw that during the COVID with the careers of Dr. Fauci, Dr. Collins, and others, I think.
No, I think that's so fascinating because, you know, right now there's sort of this schism in the country and, you know, you you look at the left particularly and they've really become this party of the elite and very disconnected from a lot of Americans who, you know, have a working class background. And that's so interesting for you because you've sort of been in both worlds where you'd have been in the sort of this elite academia while simultaneously having, you know, sort of a rural and working class background. Yeah, I think so. I'll give you one example. I came, I grew up hunting on this farm and I had, we had every generation bought three or four guns. So by the time I took over my great grand, great, great grandmother's house, the Victorian farmhouse that I have, I maybe had 20 guns, but they were all old, you know, and I'd never saw them as weapons. But then I noticed that when you live out here and that the environment was changing, that all your ideas about gun control don't mean anything. Because what really means something is when at two in the morning, when two people on PCP don't speak English and throw a rock at your window and yell at you in Spanish, they're going to come in and break into your house and kill you. And the sheriff is 40 miles away, uh, 40 minutes away. And your son, who's 10, and your daughter, who's eight, and your other daughter, who's six, are crying. Then the only thing that protects you from the other world, the other world of non-civilization, is your ability to stop it. So I would get it. I had that. That was a very traumatic experience. But I got a shotgun. I went out and confronted the two people. I made them uh, walk back to their car that was hidden in the vineyard. And I called the sheriff and the sheriff didn't come and he didn't come and he didn't come. And I sat there in the fog, 40 degrees in a winter night, just waiting until he came and he never came. And then I walked them out, took their keys, threw them in the vineyard and said, you're going to walk to town. And I learned something from that. And that is that all the, the folkism that I had been told as a child by neighbors, and I sort of wanted to get away from that and go to the university and meet people who were educated. And my parents had told me that because they were both educated and they came back from the farm. My mother was one of the first women to graduate from Stanford Law School in 1946, and she was the first female appellate court judge in California, but yet she went back to the farm and in her 60s, she would peddle fruit with us or my dad would get on the tractor. He was a JC administrator and they were running the farm and they had told me, don't ever, ever look down on your roots or working people and they'll always be there for you in a way that your academic friends will not. And they were so right. How has this all shaped your viewpoint on immigration? Uh, You know, some of the stories you just told also, you know, working on a farm, growing up where you grew up. How has that shaped your viewpoint on immigration in the country? I think it's a tragedy because, say, yesterday I got up and I went to town. I talked to a guy who wants to paint my house. I went to Home Depot and got some parts. I went to the diesel mechanic and got some fuel additive. But I didn't see anybody who was not Mexican-American or from Mexico. And all of them were wonderful people. And I didn't even, I don't even at this point, because we're about 85% Hispanic in this town that was once about 85% white when I was a young kid. But the point, I'm, what I mean by tragic is every single person who came legally or is here legally or came in a measured fashion uh, and learned to speak English and got a high school diploma are, are wildly successful. That They're intermarried with different people from different backgrounds. It may be predominantly Hispanic, but we're getting to the point like the Italian immigration of the 19th century where people who were Catholic and came from Sicily face greater prejudice than Northern European Protestants. But if by three generations, if your name was Giuliani, Giuliani or Cuomo, nobody could determine your politics. And that was happening here. And then when we open the borders and people flood in, 
many of them from southern Mexico. And that's a point that's never made, that people are not coming from the northern province states as, as they used to, but Yucatan, Chiapas, Oaxaca. And they're much poorer. Some of them do not speak Spanish as their primary language. They speak a, sort of a dialect, Mixotec. They come up here, and as indigenous people, they've had a lot more prejudice in Mexico. They don't know English, and so they're much harder to assimilate. So at that very moment, when immigration changed them, we should have been really doubled down on the melting pot. And I tried for 21 years at Cal State, where I, I, I had mostly Mexican-American students. I tried to teach them Greek and Latin, made sure they read French and German. I got them into law schools, business schools, but it wasn't easy. And what I'm getting at is when these elites just throw open the borders and let people come in here illegally with no English and no high school diploma and not diverse, they're not coming from all over the world, but from just one region, then it's so hard to integrate, assimilate, intermarry immigrants. And they never suffer the consequences of their own ideology because they have the money and the influence to find a zip code or a geography that insulates them. And who does it fall most heavily on? Mexican-American people. If they came to my hometown and talked to a fourth-generation, third-generation, somebody of Mexican uh, descent, they would say, oh, Victor, it's hard to have AP when we have all these people coming in. And, you know, these gang members attack my grandson because he doesn't speak Spanish. And I don't even know who these people are. And when they get in a wreck, they leave the scene of the accident or they've got phony IDs or my wife is at the state dialysis center and it used to be an hour. And now they're waiting in line because all these immigrants don't have any health care and they don't and and they're here illegally, etc. So a lot of the opposition I think to illegal immigration comes from the people it directly influences. And, but legal immigration, I think, is a wonderful thing. And, uh, and a true diversity of thought and different groups. And I grew up, you know, with an Armenian neighbor, a Greek American neighbor, uh, a Japanese American, a Mexican American neighbor, and where they all kidded each other about their ethnic faults or shortcomings. Uh, they all judged each other on how well they farmed. It was incidental. So I'm really worried, maybe you are too, Lisa, about this Biden administration fixation on race, because I think there's never been a multiracial democracy except ours that work without, you know, Soviet-like coercion or the Ottoman coercion. And when we look around the world today, India is an example. So is Brazil. I can't think of any others, and they don't do a very good job. And so it's we don't want to become the former Yugoslavia or Rwanda or Iraq. And yet Biden seems intent on emphasizing differences and grievances and victimizations rather than the melting pot assimilation and the dream of Martin Luther King. But what do you think's behind that? Because I've heard, you know, some of the words to describe the Biden administration. We've heard, you know, communism, Marxist, socialist. They've sort of been used interchangeably to describe the administration you know, are those distinctions important? And then, you know, how would you label the Biden administration? Because I've heard a lot about, you know, basically instead of class warfare, like the Marxists of the past, now it's racial divisions that they're driving in a similar fashion. Yeah, I think you make a good point. I think there's two phenomena working in tandem. One are the people around him that go in and out of academia or the law or politics Whoever is advising them, I don't know if it's people around Kamala Harris or the Obamas or his chief of staff, but they are influenced by this 
a neo-Marxist idea that there's a permanently oppressed class. But that has never worked. That meaning a revolution has never worked in this country because of the success of market capitalism and upward mobility. So if you start off as a truck driver, you end up you know, making pretty good money and you're not a class victim. But so Gramsci and others said, you know, there is a cultural Marxism, a social Marxism. And here they fixed it on race. And they said, you know what? If we can prove that race is always oppressive and it sticks with you for the rest of your life, then Oprah is a victim. Jay-Z is a victim. Meghan Markle is a victim. The Obamas are a victim. They can be worth $100 million. They can be the most powerful couple in the United States, but because they're black, they're always going to be a victim. And we know there's too many victims for the number of victimizers, or we wouldn't have these crazy things like the Juicy Smollett fiasco. So they're trying to create a permanent victimhood and then have a permanent class, but this is a racial division, and then be the defenders of the oppressed and then leverage the system for political uh, gain and power. And then secondly, very quickly, Joe Biden, got to remember, his campaign was inert. Nobody had ever done that before. He blamed the quarantine, but it was really his age and inability to campaign in a traditional fashion. His transition was inert. And all he had two his handlers had two points. Donald Trump is mean and tweets and he's angry and we don't like him and he's a divider and I'm going to be old Joe Biden from Scranton. And two, we're in a quarantine. We've got to have 100 million people vote, not on election day. We need mail-in ballot. We need early ballot. It's extensive crisis. We got to shut people down. And that started to fade during the transition with Operation Work Speed. By the time he was entering office, a million people a day were being vaccinated. And now Donald Trump is irrelevant, really, because he can't get on social media. He's been barred. He's He's, he's very important within the Republican conservative circles, but CNN's, as you know, either their ratings are disastrous because they can't fixate on him. So Biden lost that and he lost the um, COVID quarantine recession, all that stuff to blame on Trump. So what, what was he left with? Now people are looking at what he's done in the first 140 days, and it's not pretty. The Middle East, he, he screwed up. He could have left it alone, but it's a mess. The border is a mess. Gasoline prices and energy development are a mess. Critical race theory and racial relations are a mess. And looks like we were bound to have a natural recovery with plenty of prior stimulus, but getting up to $30 trillion in national debt and a lot of stimuli and paying people not to work while you hector the productive class means we've got too many dollars chasing too few products. And so he did all of that. And none of those things he's done, if you look at the polls, poll 51%. So it's a race war. It's this, it's that, it's that. He's got to find some bogeyman. Fascinating point, Professor. We have to take a quick break. Back on the other side. I'm so excited to launch my first podcast, Luna Talks with Anna Paulina with Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. But let me warn you, this is not a podcast for the faint of heart or easily offended. This is a podcast for those who want to learn, to engage, to be inspired. This is a podcast for those who are brave and unafraid of the truth. And perhaps most importantly, for those who still believe in the audacious idea known as the American dream. This is not your average podcast because I'm not your average person. As a proud Hispanic American, I overcame adversity by joining the Air Force as a teenager and later on ran for Congress in 2020. Now I'm hosting my own podcast, Only in America. 
Come join me and be a part of the growing movement of free thinkers who put up their middle fingers to cancel culture and political correctness. Tune in now before you feel silly as the only one of your friends who hasn't. Listen to Luna Talks with Anna Paulina on iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The new podcast, Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the golden EIV microphone. The incredible story of the life and times of a man who changed the way we think and the way we talk. From his first job to his final broadcast, through testimonials from his peers, his protégés, his family, fans, and those who worked closest with him. And of course, Rush himself in his own words. This is the remarkable life story of a man who changed America from a perspective never heard before. Now on iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And we've created this massive welfare state over the past year due to government lockdowns and the amount of, uh, you know, enhanced unemployment that's being doled out as well. You know, what impact do you think that has on the country, both culturally and then also economically moving forward? You know, that's a really good point when you you emphasize culturally. When we just say, you know, it's well, if you're getting fourteen hundred dollars here and eight hundred dollars there, there's no incentive to go back and work and lose it. And that, that was always a supposedly a right-wing talking point, but it's absolutely true when you see it. And I can see it in a small town where you talk to employers. I'm not talking about corporate employers. I'm talking about small business employers that cannot find workers, at least uh, regular workers. They can find people who will come in three or four hours a week and get cash off the books so they can continue to get supplements. Or they can find, are they themselves then play the game and they'll say, you know, I lost all of this money because of the dislocation. And they didn't in some cases. So we've created sort of a massive shared industry that we're all looking back at the last 14 months and saying we we were victimized. I had a corporate guy call me this week and I think his net worth is 500 million. I don't want to talk too much about him. So the IRS doesn't go or somebody doesn't go after him. But he said, I got a stim- I got a stimulus check. And then my son who's a teacher. He said to me, we didn't ask for it. A stimulus check came. What do I do with it? I said, put it in the bank. And they said, well, I'm, I'm supposed to stimulate the economy, am I? I said, well, what do you need? He said, I don't really need anything. We live very frugally. But so culturally, we're creating this idea that the government is in life of Julia, pajama boy fashion, is going to always be there. And we're doing it by printing money. And remember what Obama said the other day. Obama said he came out of retirement as his want now to make these pontifications. He said, well, you know, we've learned that we don't have to fixate on a $30 trillion debt. We have a new way of thinking about economics, i.e. we don't have to pay this money back that maybe will inflate the currency. It might hurt wealthy people, might not, but we're not going to fixate on it. And so it's been very deleterious. And then the other thing, of course, in strictly economic terms, when you coop up uh, 330 million people for 14 months and you let them out, and they're being let out now. It's crazy. Uh, you can't buy lumber. You can't buy uh, a truck. I bought a, tr- a new truck, and I could not believe it. I went to this Dodge Ram place, and, I mean, they were selling four or five, six Rams a day, and not, not middle-level kind I bought. I mean, luxury luxury Ram pickups, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars 80000 and no down payment, zero interest, incentives. They stop that now, but my gosh. And then people call you up and say, you just bought a truck. We'll buy it back for you for what you paid for it. We're short at our used car lot. So why is that happening? Because when, the, when you create and print all of this money and you let people out, 
and yet you discourage them to be productive and to produce goods and services, and you tell the employer, hey, guess what? As soon as we can, your corporate taxes are going up, your capital gains taxes are going up, your personal income taxes are going up, your estate taxes are going up. And oh, by the way, we're going to shut down this pipeline, shut down ANWR, shut down federal leasing, and your energy costs are going to skyrocket. Well, then a lot of people get discouraged and they pull in their horns. And so we did the worst possible thing. With natural demand soaring, we artificially engineered a spike in it. And then we deliberately, or maybe accidentally, I don't know, depending on your view of Obama, uh, Biden, we discouraged production. And the result is we're going to get inflation of 5 to 8%, I think, or higher. And what you do when a when you're an investor and you've got a, you you're buying bank mortgages at 2.8 percent for 30 years and your currency is going down by five to seven percent, that's not going to last long. Well, personally, you know, I, I think it's with intention because Democrats, you know, you mentioned Life of Julia campaign. They want people to be dependent on the government from cradle to grave because it gives them control. It gives them votes. That's you know, that's my personal opinion. But we're also seeing, sir, you know, Americans, a lot of Americans making the decision to not get vaccinated, which, in my opinion, is their choice. I'm young and healthy. Why should should I be forced to get vaccinated? However, it's creating sort of this, you know, some the people that are choosing not to be are slowly being ostracized from society. It's almost like a new class structure, the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. Where does that head? Well, the problem with that is that anytime you take a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, quite diverse population and you start for even noble reasons to make distinctions and to categorize and labels and ID cards, then you've set a precedent. And when it's based on a lie, and so why is the left doing this? The left is doing this. If you turn on the cable networks, they all say white Republicans are not being vaccinated. These are the deplorables. These are the QAnon. These are all the conspiracy freaks. But then you look at the data and by ethnic group, and Asians are getting vaccinated about their proportions in the general population are a little bit above. Uh, so are whites. In fact, they're a little above. In fact, they've been criticized for being privileged that more white people as a percentage of the state's population are vaccinated than other people. So who are not being vaccinated according to their proportional representation in the demography? It's uh, African-Americans, and there's historical legitimate reasons why, perhaps, and Latinos. So then we have this, when you start playing with race, you get these paradoxes. So we have all of these people saying, you got to get vaccinated, we're going to punish you. And they're also saying, but the underserved communities didn't get vaccinated. So this is going to be very interesting because are they going to start turning away uh, minorities when they want to go to a movie or when they want to get on a plane? They're going to say, sorry, you weren't vaccinated because those populations have a higher rate or higher distrust of the vaccination or whatever particular exegesis you want than do the white majority that they think they think or they they kind of demagogue is the problem with the population in general not being vaccinated. Such an interesting point. Actually, more people should be talking about that. So I'm glad you mentioned that. That's a really brilliant point. Let's take a quick commercial break and then we're back with Professor Victor Davis Hanson. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. Are you tired of gulping down the lying filth of the mainstream media? Yeah, we are, too. We try to tell you the truth every single day. Gulping down lying filth. 
Wow. Nobody wants to sound dumb. Our goal is to help you not sound dumb. We'll inform you, and it'll be fun at the same time. You have to choose between entertainment and information. Combine them both with the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty On Demand. Four episodes available every day via the iHeartRadio app or wherever you download your podcasts. You know, to the earlier part, like you were saying, they're trying to use it as a way to sort of slander conservatives, to slander, uh, you know, Trump supporters particularly. But we've seen this for a long time, the dehumanization of Trump supporters to try to make them less than, you know, that's why the left, in my opinion, calls an unborn child a clump of cells, because if you dehumanize something, it has lesser value. And they've been trying to do that to Trump supporters. And we're seeing even with the January 6th event, obviously, it was terrible what happened, but we have people like President Biden saying it's the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War, which clearly it was not. No, that's a complete historical lie. I mean, 9-11 was much more grievous. The bonus march of 1932, they took tanks out there and char- charged the crowd. Douglas MacArthur did with tanks. And they were out there for three months, 20,000 people in continual protest. This summer, we had 120 days, $2 billion worth of damage, 30 people dead. 14,000 people arrested. And uh, and notice what he also does. He, do, he, he says the intelligence agencies say white supremacists. Well, that's only because of their definitions. If you're Antifa or BLM and you try to burn down a federal courthouse or police precinct, that is not terrorism. If you, The January 6th is, they say. Or if you want to shoot Steve Scalise and take out the Republican leadership, if you're James Hodgkinson, then that's death by suicide. That's why you did it. Or Major Hassan in 2009 killed 13 people, yelled Allah Akbar. Well, that was workplace violence. So what the left does, they take all of these incidents and then they arbitrarily in fluid fashion determine this is a terrorist incident. This is a terrorist incident. And I'm talking about not just the political left. I'm talking about the bureaucratic institutionalized FBI left as well. And so when Biden says this, and I don't know what to say, he says, he said the same thing about anti-Asian hate crimes, when we know statistically about 65% of them are committed by people who make up about 6% of the population, African-American male. Or when he said it about anti-Semitic attacks and and Jewish, anti-Jewish violence in Los Angeles and New York, we knew who was doing that. It was almost overwhelmingly young males of Middle Eastern descent. And yet you would think that this was all created by Donald Trump using the term Wuhan virus or going to Charlotte five years ago. Well, and of course, that was a lie. What they said about, uh, you know, what he said about Charlottesville, you know, that was a, a complete lie with the media pushed as well. Absolutely. And we, we know that yet they keep repeating. And he said there were, you know, bad people and good people on both sides. And he said, I'm not talking about the Klan and the Nazis and that, and that was just completely left out. That that lie got a lot of currency and resonance because so many of the never Trumpers jumped on television and just said Charlottesville, 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 and then the left said, "See, look at these never Trumpers," as if they were they had any validity or currency. But uh, I'll just finish by saying it's very dangerous when you, in Pavlovian fashion, just reject everything because Trumps or anybody's fingerprints. So a lot of people have died because it was laughed at what Trump said about the Wuhan uh, virology lab having a role in this engineered uh, gain and function virus. And we we lost three or four months knowing what was going on. A lot of people died, uh, as we know from recent 
research that hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, while they're not cure-all, they had efficacy in the early stages. That's demonstrably true. And yet, because Trump said that, they were completely uh, blacklisted or shunned that, that route. And a lot of people are sitting in jail, uh, in some cases, solitary confinement, because of this lie that uh, on January 6th, there was an armed insurrection with people. Not one of them was found with weapons. And there were no architects that had sophisticated plan to stage a coup. And Officer Sicknick was not violently killed. He died a day later of natural causes of stroke, according to the autopsy. And there were not ties brought in by people trying to tie up and kidnap people. Those were police ties. And I could go on. The only person who died violently was a 14-year military veteran who was shot while entering feloniously, maybe, the capital. And she was shot by an officer who mysteriously to this day has not had his or her name or gender or race identified yet. That's our want, again, to do so in every case of an unarmed suspect being shot by and killed by police. So we live in an empire of, I don't know, delusion and lies. And it's it's very it has a lot of scary ramifications, deadly ramifications. Professor, I I could talk to you for hours. I know that you are a busy man and you are on a tight schedule. I thank you so much for the time that you've spent on The Truth with Lisa Booth. It's an honor to speak with you. Thank you for having me, Lisa. I enjoyed it. I want to thank Professor Victor Davis Hanson for his insight today. The man is always brilliant. And I want to thank you guys at home for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please leave us a review and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at at Lisa Marie Booth. Special thanks to our producer, John Cassio, writer Aaron Kliegman, researcher Margaret Smith, and our executive producers, Debbie Myers and Speaker Newt Gingrich, all part of the Gingrich 360 Network. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. Are you tired of gulping down the lying filth of the mainstream media? Yeah, we are too. We try to tell you the truth every single day. Gulping down lying filth. Wow. Nobody wants to sound dumb. Our goal is to help you not sound dumb. We'll inform you, and it'll be fun at the same time. You have to choose between entertainment and information. Combine them both with the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty On Demand. Four episodes available every day via the iHeartRadio app or wherever you download your podcasts. The new podcast, Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the golden EIB microphone. The incredible story of the life and times of a man who changed the way we think and the way we talk. From his first job to his final broadcast, through testimonials from his peers, his protégés, his family, fans, and those who worked closest with him. And of course, Rush himself in his own words. This is the remarkable life story of a man who changed America from a perspective never heard before. Now on iHeartRadio or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Podcasts.